The passage this morning is from Colossians chapter 3. It will be on the screen in just a few moments, but if you have a Bible, please feel free to turn there. Um, For those of you visiting, we are finishing up our series in Colossians. Here at Grace, we we tend to work through uh, letters or books of the Bible, Um, and we do that. And so please understand that this week it wasn't like, hey, we have new people. Let's talk about the mortification of sin. That wasn't the intent, Uh, although it's not a bad idea. We all need it all the time. So just to kind of let you know where we're going, where we've been, uh, in a few weeks on September the 9th, we're going to start a new series in the book of John. Um, And uh, we have this sermon and one more sermon in Colossians. And then on Labor Day, Doug will be preaching. So we're we're in the middle of these final three discussions in Colossians from chapter 3 where Paul is talking really about sanctification. That's a a big word theologians use simply to mean the time a Christian lives between coming to know Christ and our death or Christ's return, right? We have this season of life where we hope to grow in Christ's likeness. What does that look like? How does that happen? And so last week we talked about how the first four verses of Colossians 3 they act like a hinge. Uh, those verses say, you know, seek the things that are above. If you've been raised with Christ, because you've been raised with Christ, you know, do not seek earthly things, right? Um, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated. And so that is the, the impetus behind this discussion. And we're going to talk about mortification. The reason I use the word is some of you are familiar with it, and I'm not great at titling sermons. Jonathan, John Owen says, you know, the mortification of sin, it's, it's a classic text. You, you'll see some quotes on the front of your worship guide if you want to read more of those quotes. The, the op, it means putting to death sin. It's Latin. The opposite would be vivification, that's bringing to life. That'll be next week. Uh, put on then in verse 12 will come out next week. So we have these two sides of one coin. The coin is sanctification, that's growth. One side's putting off, putting to death the things that are evil in us, and then the other side is bringing to life the things that Christ would bring to life in us. So that's where we are. That's what we're doing. Um, let's look now at our, at our passage, starting at verse 5 of chapter 3. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, Excuse me, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have transferred us into the kingdom of light with the purpose of restoring and renewing not only us as individuals but as your people, the church, to bring life to this world. Lord, I pray that you would um, help, help us understand through the power of your spirit, the presence of your spirit, what Paul is saying in this passage this morning. Amen. 
So I don't mean to do, uh, can we turn the lights? I made, I made a mistake and asked Mark to turn the lights down, but I have a feeling it's too dark. Can you all, I need to see you all so I can see your facial expressions to know if I'm disappointing everybody as we, okay. Um, when I was about 12 years old, every time we went to the mall, I went to either Walden or B. Dalton. I did both. You remember those two stores? Before, this is before Barnes & Noble. And uh, usually they had the same books, but I always went to the how-to section. That tells you a little bit about me. Uh, I wanted instructions on life, and I, I remember finding a book on how to restore cars, and I bought the book. I, I had no business. I've never done that. I've never, I, but I looked at this book. I went through it. I was fascinated by the thought that you could go to a junkyard, take an old, nasty car, buy it, and like restore it to perfection. I think the movie Stingray had come out around that time. Remember Mark Hamill from, he plays Luke Skywalker, right? I think, remember that movie? I know you do. He's like in a junkyard and he looks up and on the magnet is this Corvette Stingray. It's going to go into the crusher. And he gets it somehow. I don't know how he tells the guy to lower it. And he restores it. And the rest of the movie, I think he just drives around a Corvette Stingray. And that's, that's beautiful. Like I, I remember going to my mom and saying, is this possible? I was 13. So I'm thinking when I'm 16, I want a Stingray. I want a Mercedes. I want something glorious that was a ruin when I got it, right? Uh, she said, no, that's not possible. So I've spent the rest of my, uh, my days trying to prove her wrong. Well, Jesus does, and, and he does so by saying, I am here to restore you. Francis Schaeffer says, we are glorious ruins, and I want you to know that as we come to this passage, it's very easy to go, oh. Like, it, it has the feel, if you're not careful, of like when the teacher says, I have a little homework, you know, and you start writing down the homework. And one more thing, oh. one more essay, one more thing you have to read. You're like, no more, Paul. Right? I want to live by faith in Christ. I don't want to do this. But I hope you'll hear this morning the promise in this passage. Jesus wants to restore to a, a glory you've never seen before you and this community, and it's beautiful. So that's what we're going to look at, this restoration of, of the people of, of God, the restoration of us. And we're going to do that by starting with an interesting thing that's actually not necessarily in this passage, and that is the word shalom, because it's in verses 1 to 4, and it's hinted at in this passage. And, and shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And I've talked about it many times before, but it's, it's much more than peace. It's flourishing. It's the way things are supposed to be. And, and the prophets, when you read the prophets in the, in the Old Testament, they're always longing for the day where the deserts will, will, will grow and bloom and blossom. And it's important when you come to your theology on sanctification that it's driven by your viewpoint of glorification, Glorification is the, is the theology that one day, someday, Jesus is going to return and make all things new, Revelation 21, right? Weapons will be turned into plowshares, and, 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 and he's going to wipe away tears. Where is that in our passage? It's in verse 4 last week. So, Dan, do you, did I ask you to keep that slide? Verses 1 to 4, I just want to remind you where we are going. Last week, I told you we would stick, stick with these verses. So, it's verse 4. Where, where Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Paul is couching this entire view of sanctification in the fact that your hope and my hope is not simply that while we live on earth, things are going to go pretty well, though that's wonderful and that's the ho- a goal, but that one day, someday, we will have eternity perfect with Jesus, that every tear will be wiped away. That is the concept of shalom. And, and our job in, in this life is to bring that into our lives now. So what we're doing when we put away sin is we're not simply being good Christians, moral people. We're rather bringing life into our community, and we're bringing shalom into our very presence. Um, One author describes shalom this way. He says, as the great writing prophets of the Bible knew, sin has a thousand faces. The prophets knew how many ways human life can go wrong because they knew how many ways human life can go right. These prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise, the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. And he goes on to describe this, and I think we all get this idea that we're not just simply longing for good morals. We want, a, we want a newspaper that you open up and it's celebrating righteousness. Politicians that are doing what they're supposed to do, right? Schools are operating the ways they should operate. The, the, the state has too much money. Like we have a surplus, you want it back? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm asking you before we move into this discussion on sin, have you in your faith with Christ found yourself longing for his righteousness to transform you and the community you live in? Is that your hope? Because if it's not, then you're going to not like the verses that we're going to go into because they're going to just feel overwhelming. But if you realize what Paul's talking about is this beautiful picture of, of restored restoration, glorious ruins being made new, then we can move into this passage a little bit more carefully and understand what he's getting at, okay? So that's point number one. Now we're moving into the heart of this discussion on sin. That is a harsh word. I think I'm still, I'm old enough to have lived in an era where that word could still be used in public discourse. Older folks, older than me, Chad, just kidding. Um, You all, you know, the, the older you are, the more you can remember, even on news, like they could say sin, right? But now we don't say that anymore. Like that that word has disappeared from public discourse. Um, Doug and I were talking this week. He said that, I think, I didn't look it up, so I'm just going to quote you, and then you're in trouble if it's not true. Uh, that, that Germany transitioned in the late 1800s to the word values from morals. The idea that morals implies there's a God and there's a right and a wrong. Values are sort of whatever you choose as a group. You know, we, do, we have our values. But the reality is, We are in the midst of a cosmic drama, started in the garden with the fall, ending at the cross, well, climaxing at the cross, ending when Jesus returns, and we have to always remember that large story when you come to these passages. In our very text, Paul says in verse um, 8, he's just listed a series of sin patterns, and he says on verse 8, on, or verse 6, excuse me, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And what he is saying is, remember that God is about removing 
the evil from this world. Now, a lot of times we read that and think, oh, no, I do some of those things. Is he going to send me to hell? Like, I'm just going to ask you to, to not think that for now because he's not. What we're talking about is the fact that these patterns of life are like cancer and these, these, this list of words, which we're going to talk about in just a minute in verse 5, when, when that's the way the world operates, it's evil. And one day, someday, God is going to remove them when he wipes away every tear. He's going to remove these, pro, these lifestyles, these, these um, cancer cells. I don't know anybody who's ever had cancer that thought, you know, I don't really care if it's gone. I just kind of want the effects of it to be removed, Right? We want it eradicated. And so when he says, um, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming, he's t- I think he's playing off of Christ appearing, and he's saying, for, for the earth, God's wrath's going to remove it. For Christians, we're going to have the new heavens and the new earth come in. Don't you love the rain, by the way? If you don't like what I'm talking about, just enjoy the rain. Okay, let's talk about these, these words. Paul uses a list in verse 5, sexual immorality. That word, the Greek, porneos, you can kind of guess what word we got from that. Porneos, can you guess? Uh, It's an outward sexual sinful activity, okay? And what I want you to know is this list of words, when the original audience read them, and I think when we read them, everybody would go, yes, we understand what you mean, Paul. For example, an extramarital affair, something that you could tangibly call outward sexual sin. But as you start to walk through these words, it's interesting, they go into the heart. The next one is impurity and then passion. Passion is something our culture sort of celebrates. Like, what are you passionate about? That's not exactly what he means, but he does mean a desire life that's aimed at wrong things. It's, I'm, a person is passionate but it's not necessarily acted upon in that word. Do you see how we're going deeper in? The next thing, evil desire, that's two words. The word desire there is similar to coveting. It's an internal desire, but it's evil. So he's moving deeper into the heart with these words. And then finally, he gets to covetousness. And covetousness is actually maybe not, it's wanting something that could be lawful. Like I want a great career, I want to marry that person, etc. It's good, but I'm just obsessed by it, right? It's, I'm so drawn, like I'm coveting, I want it so badly, which is why he said this is idolatry. So what Paul is doing is he's saying this, sin dwells in this room. Like all of us could look at that list, and on some level, I think almost everyone in this room could say, I don't do those things as a practice. That's not like, I'm not the guy or the girl who just, that's what I want to do every day. But remnants of it exist. The sin is there. And the encouragement is, Paul is not saying, well, then you're not a Christian. He's saying, you should expect that. But understand that it's evil and our desire should be to put it to death. Okay? Is that our desire? Do, I, do we hate this? Um, I, I was thinking about this um, putting to death concept, and I just, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a few minutes, but it, it's not that you can get rid of it completely, 
That's perfectionism. That's the doctrine of perfectionism. But rather, we're trying to stop feeding it. We're trying to stop give it, giving it three square meals a day. That's what Paul's talking about. Okay. I want, if you could put that quote up on the board, Dan, I want you to hear Cornelius planning and talking about sin. We're going to read it together. I'll read it out loud. And he's talking about how we deceive ourselves because of the presence of sin in our lives. Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. What's devastating about it is that when we lack an ear for wrong notes in our own lives, we cannot play right ones or even recognize them in the performances of others. Eventually, we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss both the exposition and the recapitulation of the main themes God plays in human life. The music of creation and the still greater music of grace whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us. The idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. What what, uh, Cornelius is planting and saying there, what a great name, you have to be a theologian when your parents name you Cornelius, is don't get bored with your sin. Like don't get to where you're just used to it but rather hate it. And what I want you to know is what we learned last week is we are free to hate what is sinful in us because of Jesus, right? What Paul is teaching in this passage is you are no longer identified with your flesh. So when you have a sinful thought, a sinful temptation, anything like that, the tendency is to identify with that as if that were your real self. And Paul is saying no. You've been transferred into the kingdom of light. You, are, you have been raised with Christ. That is not who you are. So now you are free to clean it out by not giving it life, by not living in it, by not smoldering in it. And I want to move now to this next list. He says, in these you too once walked, verse 7, when you were living in them. So he's saying that's past tense, sort of, right? Mostly, we hope but now you must put them all away. Meaning put those away, but let me tell you, Paul says, evidence that sin still remains. And before I read the list, I just want you to know, there's a tendency for Christian moralists to think, I don't do that stuff anymore. Those are the heathens. Those are the pagans. Now I go to church. I don't do this bad stuff anymore. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, yeah, well, let's look at this next list and see if the seeds of sin are still churning in your soul. Do any of you struggle with these? Raise your hand. Just kidding. Okay. Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. What Paul is doing, and he does this in Galatians so well, is he's saying, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, I mean, it matters in a sense of pollution to your person what your sin patterns are, but please don't pride yourself on being sinless when you are angry all the time or when you are cranky or when you hold malice in your soul or when you slander other people. Like, these are not, these are evidences that you're still living out of the old man. 
And what Paul's longing for us to do is to transition out of that into the new man. And that's what this passage is showing us. It's revealing that sin is much deeper and more insidious than we ever thought. It's uh, Richard Lovelace who quotes sin to say, it's much more than the outward acts, the, the technicolored sins that most of us think about, the things we feel guilty over. He says it's better when you think of sin to realize it's an organic network of compulsive behaviors, thoughts, words, and deeds, behaviors that are deeply rooted in their alienation from God. That's what Paul's saying. So he's saying, cheer up. You're worse than you think. That's good news. Why? Why is that good news? I use this illustration too often, but it just makes sense for my life. I don't do chores at the home very well. We had a friend over the other day, and I'm like, what do you, I watch TV at night, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I go outside and take care of things. And I'm like, that was like foreign language. I'm like, I'm on Netflix. Like, I'm winding down anyway. I'm just letting you know I'm, I have growth to do. So here's the illustration. Someone comes to your house, your wife comes to you or your roommate or your spouse or your husband, however, whoever you are, and says to you, hey, do you want to do this thing, like home improvement thing? I, here's what I think, no. What I say to my wife is, let's just write that down and, and, and like, like, I need a couple of weeks to kind of watch some YouTube videos, you know. But if she said, oh, by the way, there's a person coming over who's an expert, and there's like a $50,000 budget, so all you have to do is point out the problems and he's going to fix them, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to start like every little problem in our house. I've got like a list like the baseboards, the, I saw a cobweb over there, like the toilet doesn't flush great. All this stuff would just start coming out. Why? Because no longer am I the one that has to do it. The reason we hate mortification of sin is we have bought into this idea that it's our job to fix ourselves, and it's not. What this passage is teaching, what Paul is teaching is revolutionary. It's simply, listen, to live from above is to have the boldness to simply by faith proclaim, Lord, these things are in my heart and I don't like them, will you remove them? And it's his spirit that gives you that ability in the first place. And these, these things like anger and wrath and malice, these are the results of us trying to make ourselves better, right? We want people to like us so badly that anytime something doesn't happen the way we want it, we get angry. I, I confessed last week that for myself, often, if I don't leave the house when I want to leave on time, I become angry, right? Now, I, I want you to know I don't throw things for the most part, no. But the point I'm making is if I analyze and dig deeper, why am I upset? Well, it's because being on time is godly. No. It's because I want people to accept me. I want to be acceptable by you and by whomever. And in some crazy way, that got translated into my life through my story that being on time was better. Right? Nobody cares. It's better to be a little late. No, you know what I mean? Like, um, if I got my wife, like, we got to be five minutes late. If you're ever on time, it's just awkward. Ask the four college students that showed up on time. There's like, nobody here. Sorry, guys. I was like, sorry. I promise there's a few folks that come to church. But why do I get angry? Because I want something to prove me, okay? And so that's me living out of the flesh. If you look at verse 9, he says, 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So what Paul is trying to get us to do is not muster up out of the flesh, the old man, the ability to not sin anymore. Rather, he's saying, begin to live out of your identity with Christ. You have died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Paul tells us in verses 1 through 4, your life is hidden with Christ. And in the most amazing, hard to get your brain around words of all, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him. Do you hear that? When Christ, who is your life, he's now saying you are mystically united with Jesus to where just like you can't tell me how God, how Jesus is both God and man, you cannot possibly tell me that in a way that makes logical sense. Right? You can mess it up. You can say he's 80%, 20%, or then you're in heresy. But you can't, it's 100 and 100, right? You, you've all heard and learned this. The Trinity is another one. You can't explain the Trinity. Right? St. Patrick, that video, you have to check out the video, the Lutheran. Anyway, I'll post it. Uh, anytime you try to explain the Trinity, you almost commit heresy. But, there, but nonetheless, the Trinity is very real. Well, here's another mystery. You cannot properly explain where you end and Christ begins if you are a Christian because of the mystical union of Christ. You're in Christ. So what Paul's teaching then is when you sin, it's not you. Like it's not you and your proper self. And he's trying to wake us up to go, why are you doing this? So how do you get rid of it? I have five minutes left. I'm going to teach you how to get rid of sin forever. Be real. Three points. Y'all have your pens ready? Just kidding. Okay. Thank you for knowing that was a joke. <sighs> There's this crazy thing I've been wrestling with all week. In verse 9, I just read a little bit of it. Maybe it jumped out at you. Paul says this. Do not lie to one another. And in my, my Bible, comma. And it has the appearance of simply being one more thing. Don't have anger don't have wrath, don't have malice, and don't lie to each other. But I want you to process that for a minute. Like, are we lying to each other? Like, does someone walk in and go, I'm a fireman? Oh, that guy's an architect. What's up with that? I mean, do people do this? You know what I mean? I'm a, I, I play for OSU. I'm a football player. No, you're not. You're a pastor. Okay. So what does he mean? What is this lying that's going on? I think Paul recognizes this. You all want to be liked really, really badly, and so do I. We have this passionate, flesh-driven need to be appreciated by each other, which leads to inauthentic living in this community. We hide. We hide behind things. Again, I've got to be on time because I'm that guy, right? And I've got to look a certain way. And I'm, maybe you're rehearsing how you're going to answer questions. How are you today? I'm going to say this and that. Here's how I'm going to present that. Maybe when we have our break, you beeline it to the people you feel the best around. Right? We, we all are, are lying because we're all afraid of saying, you know what? I have this horrific sin pattern, and I need your prayer. Raise your hand if you said that to somebody in this room in the last week. Okay, don't do that. But why not? Why do we come to this place where we preach this gospel and we continue to hide behind 
our, our identities. Where is that in the passage? Let's look at verse 11. Here, I love that word. Just, Paul uses this interesting word. It's a marker of immediate circumstance, expressing a premise. Here, in this community, in the kingdom of God, in this place, there is not Greek or Jew. Okay, let's, those are in, the, in that world, in that context, that's a major division point. Right? Greek and you see in 1 Corinthians. The Greeks and the Jews are, even in the Christian church, are in animosity. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised. That would be more the Jewish perspective, right? Like, oh, you're not, you're, you're not circumcised. There's, there's a judgment in that. Barbarian. I don't know who wants to be one of those. In our culture, like, that's always, like, you're a barbarian. Someone, someone somewhere went, yeah, I'm a barbarian. What are you? I'm a Scythian. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That tells me everything I need to say no more. Slave, free. When you read your Bible, you have to bring these words into the modern era. We don't have those words. We have OU, OSU. Thank you for letting me be here as an OU grad. But I, I want to go beyond the obvious, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, whatever. I think it's so ingrained that basically what you need to do to interpret this verse is go, I walk in to a room like this, into an environment like this, into a community like this, and I do two things simultaneously. I try to build myself up and I judge you. Those are the two behaviors out of the flesh we engage in. We're, we're sizing people up. It happens um, at every event, at everything we do. We, Paul's saying we need to be aware of this in the church. And he ends by saying, but Christ is all and in all. And what he's saying is when I, when I get the gospel, when I understand my identity in Christ, that I'm died to the flesh, raised with him, I'm presently hidden in him, that's my identity, then maybe I can come into this room. I'm going to sneak ahead on verse 12 that's for next week. Put on, then he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's already assuming that about you. You're holy. You're beloved. You're God's chosen ones. You're free. Put on, then, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. None of you, and myself included, when we think about growing in godliness, think of that list. We're like Bible reading and knowledge, you know, showing up to more things. And how many of us go, I want to be more meek. I want to, I want to, be, I want to be more humble. In fact, I want to be the best one of those people. Yet the gospel comes in when you can die to this need to be so special it frees you to realize, I can look at other people. I can cherish them. I can love them more. I can ask them about themselves. I can, you know, yesterday there's a pool party and um, I'm trying to meet everybody and you all were trying to meet everybody and we're all trying to do this thing. It's for RUF. And I'm just, I'm, pain, I'm just confessing, I'm painfully aware of my inability to not think, how am I coming across? Anyone else struggle with that? Raise your hand. This one you can raise your hand on. I want to be on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like, I wonder if this is making sense what I'm saying. I wonder if that joke's landing. I wonder, 
Did I, I forgot the name, blah, blah, blah. And, and like, Jesus is like, just love this person. You're taken care of. Your, your cancer's been removed. You, you can't get sick again from that illness or whatever. And so now I can go and love somebody else fully, and I'm going to trip up. I'm going to say something dumb. And they may not like me, but that's okay. I'm going to do my best because my job is to simply rest in the reality of my identity in Christ. Are you doing that? Do you feel his love for you? Let's pray. Jesus, it's incomprehensible in our, in our earthly minds that you would die for us and love us so. Yet by faith, because of your spirit, we believe. By faith, we rest in this gospel knowledge that we have died and been risen with you. And as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified, Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with you, or we are new creations with you. The old is gone, the new has come. We are new people. So Father, I pray that you would help us this morning and every day live out of that reality and love others out of that reality because Christ, you are in me and in each of these people that believe in you and we can love each other with that same DNA Eddie prayed about earlier. Amen.